speaker tonight uh, is of particular interest to me because he now fills a position that I once occupied. He, is, uh, he was born in uh, 1934 and raised in Oklahoma. He served in the Marines from 1953 to 56 and has a BA degree from Northeastern Oklahoma State College, an MA from the University of Oklahoma and a doctorate from the University of Illinois. He wrote his doctoral dissertation for Dr. Robert Johansson, who is a longtime friend of this round table and indeed who has been a speaker here on a number of occasions. His dissertation was uh, The Northern Democracy and the Crisis of Disunion, 1860-1861. Since 1965, he's been editor of the magazine Civil War History. Since 1968, he's been assistant professor of history at Kent State University. He's published articles in the Midwest Quarterly, the Georgia Historical Quarterly, and other places. Also, he compiled a section of volume two of the Civil War books, a critical biography, which I think uh, perhaps you're all aware of. More than that, I would say reluctantly, but enthusiastically too, that he is by far and away the best editor Civil War history has ever had. Uh, he speaks to us tonight on major, uh, the picture on the uh, bulletin, you know, is not that of our speaker, but, <laughs> but he, yeah, the subject of his remarks, that is, General James Birdseye, and Marshall could have a lot of fun with that one, General James Birdseye McPherson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. J.B. McPherson was a scholar, a handsome man, a leader of men. The women loved him. So uh, that description could fit either of us. <laughs> Actually, that's not completely true. After the little quiz, I realized I'm not quite the scholar I thought it was. Perhaps all of you are often asked this question. Why your interest in the Civil War? Why this concern for something that is long past? I'm asked this quite often myself. Aside from the usual references to scholarship, patriotism, and so forth, and explaining why the state of Ohio should pay me to pursue an avocation, I found a uh, an apt story recently that effectively answers this question. It seems that a little old lady of advanced years went to confession. She told the priest that, Father, I've sinned. I've sinned with a man. The priest said, my, my, or whatever they say on these occasions. He said uh, he was understandably amazed because she was so old, advanced. And he said, well, when did this happen? She said, 75 years ago. I still like to talk about it. <laughs> I like to discuss the American past, perhaps because the present is so depressing at times. America's time of troubles, civil war. Examining the civil war, we examine ourselves, <coughs> as we necessarily must. And this, I submit, is a vital aspect of historical scholarship. Tonight, for example, we consider the civil war career of one man a small though brilliant facet of the overall picture, an attempt not merely to answer certain questions, but perhaps to ask the right questions. The Georgia sun in July is merciless. It shines on the just, the unjust, on the Confederate and the federal. Such was the case in July 22, 1864. A tall, bearded man in the uniform of a major general of the United States Army, mounted on a dashing black horse, 
turns to his followers, issues orders and directions, and then canters away towards a small grove of trees. Suddenly a shout and a command to halt, and several gray-clad men emerge from the trees. The rider hesitates, he lifts his hat, he wheels away, another order is shouted, shots are fired, and a tall man crashes to the ground. His face in the dust, no motion or signs of life. A companion lifts himself from where he had fallen and walks to the man. The gray uniforms also approach, and they ask, who is this man? And the answer, you killed the best man in our army. That is General J.B. McPherson. The rebel soldiers then hurried away on their mission to attack the Army of the Tennessee, commanded of late with a man left for dead in the little clearing. The news of McPherson's death shocked William T. Sherman as nothing in the war had. He quickly sent word to John A. Logan to take command of the Army of the Tennessee. Logan galloped to the sound of gunfire where the Army of the Tennessee was fighting for its very existence. According to descriptions at the time, Logan rose in his saddle, he lifted his saber, and he shouted, McPherson and revenge, will you follow me? The veteran Union soldiers responded <coughs> with anger, sadness, and the bloodlust of battle. McPherson was dead, but his men fought on, and they won. But this was the Army of the Tennessee, and they were never beaten. When the word of McPherson's death spread throughout the Army, the sadness and despair was universal. Sherman himself paused to weep and exclaimed that the whole Confederacy couldn't atone for the death of one such man. General Grant, when he heard the news, entered his tent, closed the flaps behind him, and sobbed for the man he termed his best friend. Private soldiers who served under McPherson expressed deep sorrow at his passing. One, an artilleryman from Wisconsin, related how his brigade received the news. Quoting, Heard the sad news that Major General McPherson was killed by the enemy this morning, which spread gloom over all. Yet we could not believe it as we looked at the flag at brigade headquarters still floating from the top of its pole. But then it lowered and stopped at half-mast and drooped mournfully in sad significance. Our beloved leader has offered up his life, a martyr to freedom. In his death, the Army of the Tennessee has lost a gallant commander, the cause of freedom a true and earnest supporter, humanity a noble Christian gentleman, and the private soldier, one of his truest and warmest friends. Never did I see such a gloom cast upon our camp. One would hardly think that the rough, unfeeling soldier could undergo such a change, but one that had seen the enthusiasms that his beaming face created in the bosoms of men on the bloody fields of Mississippi knows too well the place he has taken in our hearts. At this date, then, a century later, we justifiably ask ourselves, what manner of man was this? this McPherson. Almost unknown to all but the closest students of the Western campaigns, the highest ranking Union officer to be killed in the field of battle. Yet still without a worthy biography, even among the flood of books and non-books prompted by the late unlamented centennial. What was it about him that inspired the devotion of his soldiers, the confidence of his superiors, the love of all who knew him, even those whom fortune cast among his public enemies? Let us begin at the beginning. James Birdseye McPherson was born in 1828 in northern Ohio, the first son of a pioneer couple. When his father died, James was only 14, and to help with family finances, worked in a grocery in a neighboring town. There he gained a wide reputation as an honest, hard-working boy who might rise in the world with proper guidance and incentive. This he received from a doting mother and grandmother, 
from his understanding employer, a most perceptive man by the name of Robert Smith, who gave James books and the time to read them. His grandmother, who was a school teacher, gave him his first lessons. His employer, employer encouraged him to read Plutarch's Lives, Gibbon's Decline and Fall, and Marshall's Life of Washington. He also became interested in drawing, an avocation that became, became a great skill. At West Point, and later in his career, military career, he became known for his skill as a map maker, particularly sketches made on the scenes of the battles, such as at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. When he neared his 20th birthday, his great opportunity came, the chance to attend West Point, again through the intercession of his employer, Mr. Smith. Now, unlike his famous associates, Grant and Sherman, McPherson liked the military academy. Indeed, he developed a strong and rather sentimental attachment to it. West Point, in turn, opened a new world to him, intellectually and socially. Many of his later characteristics you can see developing here. At the end of his plebe year, he wrote to his brother, this is party night and the fellows are just fixing to go. The ladies who attend are mostly visitors who are spending a few weeks here. And some of them are perfect beauties. Perhaps I ought not to have added the word perfect, but make, must make all due allowance for when a fellow has been deprived of the society of ladies for 10 months, they appear unusually interesting. Spoken like a true soldier, I submit. Seems that McPherson was a graceful dancer and a good singer. Talents that fitted his proclivities as a, lazy, as a ladies' man. Scholastically, he did very well. <clears throat> he was studious, and he utilized the library, when many others were pursuing less scholarly activities. He was president of what was called the Dialectic Club, not connected at all with Karl Marx, I suggest, and tutored classes in arithmetic. He led his class in most matters academic, and graduated as honor man of the class of 1853. He also progressed, progressed militarily. He liked field exercises, especially engineering. Drill and horseback riding was fun for him. He took his duties seriously and in his senior year was named cadet captain. An unfortunate incident involving a student prank, which was rather harmless, caused his demotion, but the mark of leadership was upon him. He also proved himself a man of high character and was greatly admired by his classmates. One of his roommates, and you'll hear a number of familiar names, I'm sure, one of his roommates, John M. Schofield, related how McPherson always helped his fellow students with engineering, mathematics, and drawing. In fact, he was probably instrumental in preventing the failure or the dismissal of his second roommate, a temperamental young man by the name of John Bell Hood. <laughs> One incident related uh, also by another classmate, General O.O. Howard, later General O.O. Howard, is especially revealing of McPherson's character. A young man at the point was ostracized by his classmates for some imagined ungentlemanly act, which has gone unrecorded. McPherson was one of the few, almost the only man who would speak to him in public. This kindness, consideration never left him. And this was a trait that was noted by everyone who came in contact with him. One of his officers at the point said that he was the best scholar in this class, with the highest moral character of the whole student corps. John A. Logan, his famous subordinate, said he was the very man to handle volunteers. The point that Logan was touchy about, you know. And his disposition made easy the troubles of the march when organizations clashed. A gentle, sweet man, graceful, captivating, polished of manner, soft of temper, totally unconscious of fear, full of natural sweetness. Logan's wife termed him, without exception, the most unassuming and agreeable man I ever knew. Ellen Sherman called him the most sociable of the officers in the West. 
Well, obviously, McPherson was popular with the women, and even went so far at Vicksburg, after the fall of Vicksburg, to go serenading in the moonlight under the windows of the rebel ladies. Well, some people thought this and other kindness, kindnesses to the citizens of that city cast some doubt on his loyalty. McPherson's answer was this. When the time comes that to be a soldier, a man has to forget or overlook the claims of humanity. I do not want to be a soldier. But this was all before him. When he graduated, he was retained for a year at West Point as an instructor of engineering. This was an unusual honor for a young man. His next assignment was on the harbor facilities at New York. He's writing to his mother about the rumors at his boarding house, and he casually mentioned that one of them, William T. Sherman, is a West Pointer. In 1857, McPherson was assigned to engineering duty on Alcatraz Island in San Francisco before it assumed its later notoriety, I assume. There he spent the happiest days of his life. He became something of a social lion. There he met Emily Hoffman, a prominent Baltimore family, he became his fiancée and shared the final tragic chapter of his career. When secession and civil war came, McPherson was saddened at the prospect of fighting against Southern men would become many of whom had become his friends. One special Southern friend decided to resign his commission and go back south to join the army. McPherson tried to dissuade him, and in doing so, gave a remarkable assessment of the war situation and what the future would likely hold. First, he predicted that the critical theater of operation would be the Mississippi Valley. And then he said, the war is not going to be the 90-day affair that papers and politicians are predicting. <coughs> For your cause, meaning the Southern cause, there can be but one result must be lost. Your whole population is only about eight millions. Three millions are slaves who may become an element of danger. You have no army, no navy, no treasury, practically none of the manufacturers and machine, machine shops necessary for the support of armies. And for war on a large scale, you are but scattered agricultural communities, and you will be cut off from the rest of the world by blockade. Your cause must end in defeat. Well, his own way was clear. He wrote to his mother after the fall of Fort Sumter, and he wrote, My mind is made up, and I see I have but one duty to perform, and that is to stand with the Union and support the general government. I was educated at the expense of the government, received my commission, and have drawn my pay from the same source to the present time. I think it would be traitorous for me, now that the government is really in danger, to decline to serve and resign my commission. Then he added, Not that I can expect any service of mine can avail much, such as it is, it should be wielded on behalf of the Union. Parenthetically, we might ask, was there some sort of doubt in his mind? Just what did he have in mind? Uh, one conjecture is that he perhaps he meant to leave the Army altogether, simply not fight. But this is only conjecture. McPherson sailed from San Francisco in August of 1861. One of his fellow passengers was a Lieutenant James H. Wilson. Remember him as later a cavalry commander in the West. We described McPherson at that time as slightly over six feet tall, with a commanding figure, a jove-like head, flashing dark eyes. He's as fine a specimen of manhood as any race could produce. Pearson's first assignment was in Boston as captain of engineers. He confided to Wilson, Lieutenant Wilson, that he didn't, that he didn't feel qualified for any higher command than that. Languishing in Boston, however, held no appeal for him, and he wrote to General Henry W. Halleck, whom he had known in California, and asked for field duty. Asked to exchange billets with one of Halleck's staff officers who'd been injured in a fall from his horse. Among other things, McPherson said, When I came from California, I was anxious to get into active service. 
I felt somewhat disappointed in being ordered up here, though I consoled myself with the thought that I could raise a company in a month and be back in two months at the outside. The recruiting of the regular service is terribly slow, owing to the strong inducements held out the volunteers. The rate I'm going will take at least four months to enlist a full complement of men. Can you not general arrange so I can get into active service somewhere? Halleck could, and Halleck did. In December 1861, McPherson reported to Halleck that aide-de-camp was the rank of lieutenant colonel. His first important assignment was with General Grant during the Henry Donaldson campaign. Ostensibly, he was a lieutenant colonel of engineers, but as a collateral duty, he was to spy on Grant, particularly as regards his drinking. <coughs> These rumors, of course, proved false, and McPherson became one of Grant's admirers and most loyal supporters. In fact, one associate later said that he consciously patterned his battle procedures on Grant, which obviously was not a, very, was not a bad model at all. Now, with this assignment, McPherson also began his association with the redoubtable Army of the Tennessee, rising from aide to Grant to Corps commander within six months. As he wrote to his mother in October 1862, little did I think when I saw you last November that I should ever be a major general in the Army of the United States. So it is. My appointment came as a perfect surprise, as I did not think I had earned it. Well, one uh, cannot resist at this point comparing this self-effacing letter to one written by George B. McClellan at about the same time, a little earlier, I suppose, and under similar circumstances. McClellan wrote to his wife, I find myself in a new and strange position, the president, cabinet, General Scott, and all referring to me. By some strange operation of magic, I've become the power of the land. Unfortunately. In the Vicksburg campaign, McPherson served with distinction as commander of the 17th Corps, and he won the respect of his troops and the admiration of Grant and Sherman. It's not true, however, that he planned the grand maneuver that enveloped Vicksburg, a claim made by his biographer, and certain uh, southern newspapers. One Richmond newspaper, as a matter of fact, said that Grant couldn't have done it, but McPherson probably did, because even though he was a Yankee, he was a gentleman. The two aren't always mutually I suppose. The plan was Grant's. He was fortunate in his corps commanders that they could follow his orders so energetically and precisely. After Vicksburg, of course, this West Point triumvirate broke up. Grant went east with a few delays to contend with Robert E. Lee. Sherman was elevated to command in the West, and McPherson, after a time as military governor of Vicksburg, and unfortunately, this is a in his career that hasn't been written about and is worth writing about, was named commander of the Army of the Tennessee. And this, of course, was his last and his greatest adventure. After Vicksburg, many soldiers of the Western armies went home on re-enlistment furlough. McPherson himself planned a furlough to Baltimore, where his fiancée awaited. They were to be married despite the protest of her pro-Southern family. He began this trip by boat from Vicksburg, and along the way, he sent letters to Emily at every stop. Cairo, I learned to pronounce that about six years ago, a less pleasant message awaited him. This was Sherman calling him to Chattanooga to help prepare for the advance into Georgia. Said Sherman, Mac, it rings my heart, but you can't go now. According to Lloyd Lewis, <coughs> there was immediate need of McPherson's singular talent for making peace between West Pointers and volunteers. It seems that none of the Corps and Division Commanders in the Army of the Tennessee had attended West Point. 
Yet McPherson, the pride of the class of 1853, and a man deeply devoted to the academy, was on the best terms with his subordinates. And of course, some of the best civilian generals in the army served under him, particularly John A. Logan of Illinois. Now, the first clash of the Atlanta campaign, of course, provided McPherson with what might be termed the nadir of his career as an army commander, although some observers have turned just the opposite. Now, this was his famous flanking movement on Rusaka, Rusaka, Georgia. Leading the Army of the Tennessee to the left of Johnston, who was entrenched almost impregnably at Dalton. The idea, according to Sherman's orders, was from McPherson to circle to Johnston's left, to strike aggressively at the railroad at Rasaka, cut it, and then strike Johnston's flank as he, Johnston, would retreat, as he necessarily would with a force of some 15,000 men on his left and rear, this being McPherson. In this way, said Sherman, Johnston would not only be forced to vacate his impenetrable works at Dalton, but either would be forced into an irregular retreat or a pitched battle with superior Union forces. When Sherman received word that McPherson was in Snake Creek Gap, just opposite of Rosaka, he exalted, now I've got Joe Johnston dead, but it was not to be. McPherson did not cut the railroad. He withdrew from the works at Rosaka to the safety of Snake Creek Gap without a fight, beyond firing between skirmishers. Sherman, of course, was crestfallen, but he gathered the remainder of his army and followed McPherson. Johnston, of course, Force then pulled back to Rosaka, where a battle was fought with inconclusive results. Inconclusive in the sense that it did not destroy Johnson's army, as Sherman had hoped. The only good thing about this first engagement was that Johnson had been forced out of strong entrenchments at Dalton and forced to retreat. Sherman's disappointment in McPherson was manifest, and some thought he had relieved his friend from command. But all he said was a rather fatherly pat on the shoulder. He said, Well, Mac, you've missed the opportunity of a lifetime. Afterwards, the two officers were closer than before, and Sherman was lenient in his reports of the Rosaka movement. Later in his memoirs, he said that at a critical time, McPherson had been, quote, a little timid. This incident has received wide comment in the literature of the Georgia campaign, and necessarily must receive comment here. Did McPherson indeed miss the chance of a lifetime? The opportunity to destroy or disperse the enemy in the first operation of the campaign? Was he too timid at a crucial moment? Or, has been suggested, was Sherman at fault for not sending a stronger force on the flanking movement? Or was a third point possible? That the hard facts of terrain and circumstance were responsible for the Union failure to bring Johnston to battle on terms unfavorable to the Confederacy. Let me state parenthetically that I visited Rosaka a few years ago. I found as it must have been at the time, the country is wild, it's rough, and sparsely populated. The little town of Rosaka is the proverbial wide spot in the road. In fact, I was one of the latter-day casualties of Rosaka. I ate breakfast at a little cafe there. <laughs> and as a result, contracted what McPherson soldiers called the Army of the Tennessee Quickstep. <laughs> or to paraphrase an earlier study of Civil War technology, it was a related case of automatic breech-loading. <laughs> Perhaps this colors my judgment. <laughs> At any rate, reconnaissance 
in the Rusaka area was difficult. <laughs> Even today, the roads are ill-defined and hard to follow. Even today, an army could approach within a few miles without detection. It is a country that could favor only, only to favor the defensive force. A rash, a rash advance in such terrain, of course, would be disastrous. Now, it's interesting to note what McPherson's contemporaries had to say about this movement. His contemporaries in both armies. Sherman, of course, said that McPherson was timid. This is a position taken by V.H. Liddell Hart in his biography of Sherman, an excellent book, by the way, perhaps the best biography of Sherman. General Johnston, who in most instances respected Sherman's judgment, had this to say. General Sherman claims to have surprised us by McPherson's appearance in Snake Creek Gap on the 9th, forgetting that we discovered his march on the 8th. He blames McPherson for not seizing the place. That officer, meaning McPherson, tried the works and found them too strong to be seized. General Sherman says that if McPherson had placed his whole force astride the railroad, he could have easily withstood the attack of all Johnston's army. Had he done so, and sarcastically in quotes here by Johnston, all Johnston's army would have been upon him at the dawn of the next day. The cannon giving General Sherman intelligence of the movement of that army. About twice his force in front and 3,000 men in his immediate rear would have overwhelmed him, making a most auspicious beginning of the campaign for the Confederates. And of course, this is in Johnston's reminiscences, and he's defending, I suspect, his own lapse in security at not covering or defending the, the gaps on his left flank, on his left flank. On the other hand, I think you can see the point that he is making. With a smaller force, he could have held Sherman at bay at Dalton and still put enough men to his rear to destroy Sherman. Uh, I'll be able to set that backwards. To have held Sherman at Dalton and put enough men in his rear to have destroyed McPherson. One of the Confederate officers who was actually charged with defending Rusaka had mixed feelings. It was the Colonel W.C.P. Breckenridge commander of the 9th Kentucky Cavalry. He wrote this in Battles and Leaders. He said, the force under McPherson was so large that our small brigade of cavalry could not force it to, to develop its line. All that was possible was to cause the march to be as slow as that of a skirmish line, and this was done. It was late in the afternoon when McPherson drove us into the works before Osaka, which was defended only by Canty's brigade and ours. It was a gloomy prospect. We knew that McPherson had a force of about 15 to 20,000 men. There was no possibility of our receiving any reinforcement that afternoon or night. One serious attack by McPherson and Rosanka must have fallen. Fortunately, McPherson knew that Hooker had failed in his attempt to seize Doug Gap, which is a, another gap through the mountains there, north of Rosanka, and that consequently the road from Dalton, another <coughs> the road from the north and the main army of the Confederacy, was free to any Confederate column moving on him. The entrenchments at Rosaka were formidable, and when McPherson felt the lines, the response was resolute and spirited. Calmly, we waited for the inevitable assault. We did not doubt that it would be made. McPherson was young, ambitious, and able. In our ranks, he was accounted the equal, perhaps the superior, of Sherman. Here was an opportunity that Sherman might well say does not occur twice in a single life, and not for a moment did we doubt that McPherson would attack, but he did not. John M. Schofield, who commanded the smaller army of the Ohio in that same uh, force under Sherman, later said that he did not think that Sherman meant to do McPherson injustice, but that he thought he was in error in saying that at the critical moment McPherson was timid. Schofield said, I believe the error was Sherman's, not McPherson's. That McPherson was correct in his judgment, 
which certainly was mine, after passing over the same ground and fighting the Battle of Rosaka, that his force was entirely too small for the work assigned it. I had not, this, this is Schofield talking, I had not the same opportunity General Sherman had of judging McPherson as a commander, but I knew him well and intimately, having sat upon the same bench with him at West Point for four years. His was the most completely balanced mind and character of which I've ever, with which I've ever been intimately acquainted, although he did not possess in a very high degree the power of invention or originality of thought. His personal courage seemed to amount to unconsciousness of danger, while his care of his troops cannot, I believe, be justly characterized other than his wise prudence. Now, at this point, we wonder, was McPherson one of those who have been characterized as a brave of heart but coward of the mind? Undoubtedly, he possessed great personal courage. As Clausewitz commented once on the characteristics of a battle leader, two types of courage, one personal or physical courage, which McPherson certainly had, and secondly, and most important in a commanding officer, the courage to accept responsibility, courage of the mind or courage of the intellect. In other words, the courage to commit a body of men at a certain time, in a certain instance. But could he stand, commit his troops to combat, in which they might well be severely blooded? It was different at Vicksburg, when he had to follow Grant's orders. But at Rosaka, did he feel a more proprietary interest in his troops? The decision was his, and he did not perhaps have the iron fiber of Grant or even Sherman to fall back on. It's been said that a commander enters a battle in one of two frames of mind. One, that he will win. Secondly, that he will not be beaten. I think you readily see the difference. Could it have been that McPherson <clears throat> was not as concerned with fulfilling the crucial mission of cutting the road as he was in protecting his beloved army? An account of that fateful afternoon has been given, one of his, given by one of his staff, a brevet Major Roland Cox. First, Major Cox questioned what has occurred to many in an operation of this sort, why was McPherson inadequately supplied with cavalry? This has not been answered except for the possibility that sufficient cavalry simply wasn't available, perhaps. Although we shouldn't forget here Sherman's contempt for the cavalry. As he commented once, allegedly during the Georgia campaign, whoever saw a dead cavalryman? The nearest point on the railroad was Rosanka, eight miles from Snake Creek Gap. Cox says, remember he was on McPherson's staff, the road, if road it could be called, was most of the way a characteristic Georgia wagon track. This is before the federal government oppressed the sovereign people of Georgia and built the interstate highway, upon which the progress of an army must necessarily be slow. This wagon track led almost directly across the valley to Rosanka and the railroad, and about 15 miles up the railroad and up the valley was General Johnston and his army of 50,000 veterans. To reach the railroad, therefore, and effect the proposed lodgment across it, involved a march of eight tedious and uncertain miles into a terra incognita, with the left flank of the column wide open from start to finish, here where the absence of cavalry was crucial. And on this exposed flank was the enemy, almost within striking distance. Fifteen miles is nothing to a Confederate infantryman, whose movements were completely masked, and who might be waiting at any point for the opportunity to strike. In addition to the railroad, there were certainly two available highways by which he could come rapidly down the valley. Still, said Cox, the advance was cautious but not timid. From the time the column started, there had been on the part of its constantly alert commander, 
no want of energy, and no unnecessary delay of any kind. When McPherson drew near to Osaka, he conferred with Dodge and Logan, his corps commanders. Cox said that one advised against assault, and hence this was Logan, but to me this doesn't sound like Logan. But uh, Dodge later talking about this same event implies that it was Logan also. I simply don't understand this. Cox describes the scene. I distinctly remember the observation of the enemy position made by McPherson. The fact that it took place during a brisk artillery fire, and that some of us thought the general's life was in danger. <clears throat> the timber on the side of the hill or ridge toward Osaka had been slashed to give range to the guns, and a large stump had been left near where we had halted. Upon this stump, McPherson stopped, and raising his glasses, looked intently and deliberately at the enemy's works. He was over six feet tall, and standing on the stump was a very conspicuous object, but he seemed to be entirely unconscious of the fact, despite the artillery fire. He did not, however, change his position, and without any sign of haste, concluded his observation, and having done so, walked slowly back into the timber, where he informed his chief of staff that he would not attack, that he would withdraw his army to the place of safety near the gap. And of course, this is what McPherson sent in the message back to Sherman. McPherson gave the order to withdraw their misgivings among some of his officers, among some of his officers. But Cox said that as McPherson stood on the hill in front of Osaka, he was compelled either to make an attack then and there or withdraw his little army. There were not less than two brigades of Confederates behind the works, at least ten guns. There was less than an hour of daylight, and the position of the enemy in his rear was unknown. He was eight miles from the gap, and his army divided into detachments. Certainly to make an attack under such conditions called for the exercise the kind of military genius which General McPherson did not possess. And this, I believe in this instance the word genius is used in the sense of being of a cast of mind or temperament. And during the night, Johnston, of course, moved three divisions to Tilton, ten miles away. Said Cox, it has been said that genius is the capacity to preserve existing factors and comprehend the weight and importance of each element. Whether McPherson knew and understood all the factors of which we now have knowledge, we need not seek to ascertain. His actions, I think, indicated that he did. A few days later, McPherson told Cox and other staff officers that if he had attacked Rosanka or remained in front of it, Johnson would have cut him off as you cut off the end of a piece of tape with a pair of shears. Cox concluded his defense of McPherson by saying he never did his country a greater service than on the evening of the 9th of May when he took his army away from the grave and intricate dangers which surrounded it. It is not, I think, too much to say that on that day, as upon a subsequent occasion, he saved the Army of the Tennessee from utter destruction. Well, of course, the advocates of both sides of the issue had their say. But the, the point still remains. McPherson's orders were to cut the railroad or attempt to cut it, put himself astride it. This he did not do. <coughs> the ensuing campaign from Osaka to Atlanta, of course, is a classic which you're all familiar, I'm sure. Both generals handled their armies with great skill. Both had the respect of the other. For that matter, the enlisted men of each army had the respect of the other side. These were two fine armies. It's unfortunate they were engaged in killing one another. In this campaign, the Army of the Tennessee earned its sobriquet, Sherman's Whiplash. Moving from flank to flank, <clears throat> forcing Johnston out of strong positions, one captured rebel commented, you and swing on your flanks like a barn door on hinges. Another said, Old Sherman won't go to hell. He'll outflank the devil and enter heaven anyway. 
still another rebel soldier summed up the southern predicament when he wrote home to his wife said the water is scarce the yankees are plentiful and if there's still controversy about McPherson's role at Rosanka, and this is perhaps one of those controversies that will not be determined there can be little doubt that he saved his army from utter destruction in atlanta as this situation developed in july McPherson and the army of the tennessee approached atlanta from the east along the railroad from Decatur to Atlanta. <clears throat> Their advance was so aggressive that they almost pushed into the Confederate lines along the outskirts of the city. As they lined up, it was, as they approached the city, their lines necessarily became concentrated. So Dodge's Corps was squeezed out of lines, the 16th Corps. They faced Atlanta, it was Logan on the right, Frank Blair on the left, Dodge more or less in reserve on a wider line, but as it came closer, it had to pull in. But one other development affected the situation. Joe Johnston, crafty commander who worried and bedeviled Sherman, was relieved in favor of John Bell Hood. Now this move, motivated, I suggest, as much by political as military considerations, probably the best thing that Jefferson Davis ever did for the United States. Sherman's army, including McPherson, of course, knew Hood. <clears throat> Hood was not a great supreme commander. Water is scarce here, too. <clears throat> Some of the dust off the books I read this from is still in my paper here. Hood was not a great supreme commander, but was an aggressive and forceful subordinate. After he was given command, the Union forces were ready for an attack at any time. The first came July 20th against Thomas, General Thomas and the Army of the Cumberland. But Hood's lines were broken by the steady fire of that army. On the next day, he devised what was to be his masterstroke, a flanking movement which would fall upon McPherson's left and rear <clears throat> and destroy that portion of the Union force. Command of the flanking element was given to one of the steadier Confederate generals, William J. Hardee. Now, when Hardee fell upon McPherson's left on July 22nd, this is, of course, the Battle of Atlanta. They met a nasty surprise. They ran flush into the galling fire of the 16th Corps under Grenville Dodge, in line and ready to fight. What was to be a surprise flank or rear attack had become almost a frontal assault. A great deal of nonsense has been written about this battle. <clears throat> I'm adding to it, as every other battle of the war. Hood railed against Hardee for not extending his flank march far enough, although the night march of almost 30 miles was a feat in itself, and obviously no one can say that the rebels did not fight heroically that day, as they did on almost every other occasion. Other writers who should know better comment that the fact that Dodge was in position on the left was one of the quirks of fate, fortuitous accident, one of the little ironies of the war. As one put it, he couldn't have been in better position had he known the movement of Hardee's men. The truth is that Dodge was in position because of the orders from McPherson. Not orders based upon some mystical sign from heaven, but because McPherson was a professional, and in the case of any sensible commander, he saw fit to protect his flanks. McPherson had that same attribute of greatness that his more famous commanders did, to use a modern term, educability. He learned and he learned quickly. 
one thing he learned very quickly was, was the Lewis's romanticism about war. In this, he shared much with this Army of the Tennessee. They became veterans together. Compare the rowdy mob at Shiloh, whose leaders disdained entrenchments because of the dangers of losing morale and aggressiveness. These same men in Georgia could devise field fortifications within a half hour. And then compare McPherson's letter to the 17th Corps before Vicksburg, and compare that with his address to the Army of the Tennessee before Resaca. Before Vicksburg, he gave what might be one of the spread eagle speeches that, uh, or general orders that was so popular during early stages of the war. He said, our marching orders have come, and it is for us to respond with promptness and alacrity. We move to capture the stronghold of the rebels in the valley of the Mississippi. That our success is certain, I have not the slightest doubt. I know that I do not speak to the heroes of Fort Donaldson, Shiloh, and Corinth in vain. The record of your past services, glorious as it is, is but a pledge of the future. We go forward to strike a blow against this most unjustifiable rebellion, and we go to plant our flag upon the ramparts of Vicksburg, etc., etc. Before Osaka, his order read, successful issue of the battle may depend upon your individual bravery or the stubbornness with which you hold your position. Be careful of your ammunition. Reserve your fire until the enemy is within range and deliver it with deadly force, taking care to keep cool and aim low. Should the enemy advance, do not wait quietly and receive the charge, but fix bayonets and receive him halfway. And this latter is particularly apt for the Civil War. If any of your comrades fall wounded, do not leave the ranks to take him to the rear didn't happen quite as much in the West as it did the East, of course. An ample corps of men with stretchers and ambulances will follow close behind you to pick up the wounded, press forward and gain the victory. Many a regiment on the battlefield has been sadly reduced in numbers to take the wounded to the rear, and so forth. This was the mark of a veteran commander as opposed to a somewhat romantic young officer. In truth, Hood's plan did not fail. <coughs> His plan, a la Jackson and Chancellorsville, did not fail because of any lack on the part of Hardy and his troops. Did not fail on any part because of any fault of the Confederate soldiers. Failed because the Army of the Tennessee was not the 11th Corps. These men were veterans and well-led, and they were favored by the intelligent deployment of General McPherson. McPherson was well acquainted with Hood's mental qualities, although they hadn't met since they left West Point, graduating at opposite ends of the class. When McPherson read of the official appointment of Hood, he remarked to his staff that they must take every precaution against an attack. At 4 a.m. from the morning of the 22nd, McPherson received verbal orders from Sherman to move forward and occupy the exterior lines of Atlanta. McPherson, as was his habit, made a personal reconnaissance and observed the movements of rebel troops within the city. To his staff, he said, quoting, with great earnestness and a number of times, that he anticipated during the day an engagement such as, such as had not taken place during the campaign. This is the morning of the 24th, or 22nd. He then ordered Dodge to move the 16th Corps to the left of Blair. It's on the extreme left of the Union lines, thus extending his left. Dodge's recollection of that morning is worthy of note, for it tells a great deal about McPherson. What Dodge wrote was, later in the morning, McPherson came to see me, as he is in the habit of doing. If there was any movement on hand, he would come and tell us what he expected. And if not, he would have a kind, encouraging word for us. Or a compliment for what had been done the day before. 
He was a man who issued very few orders in the field, and in this respect was a good deal like Grant. He pointed out what was to be done and expected you as commander to do it without entering into details. Of course, Grant could do this in the West, but left us at liberty to do whatever was considered best. Then he expected us to accomplish, accomplish what he had told us was his objective. McPherson was the same way. When a movement was on hand or the army lay in front of the enemy, McPherson was in the habit of coming around, sitting down, talking things over, and finally getting up to the point without giving an order, simply giving us the benefit of his experience. I know he came to me in this way frequently because I was a young officer and likely perhaps to go wrong quicker than those who were veterans in the service. Well, at about 7 or 7.30 a.m., McPherson received a pencil to note from Sherman. This is the last the last written communication between the two men. What Sherman said was, instead of sending Dodge to your left, I wish you would put his whole corps at work destroying the railroad back to it, including Decatur. I want that road absolutely and completely destroyed, every tie burned and every rail twisted. In short, at 7 or 7.30, Dodge's corps was already on the move to the left on McPherson's orders. Sherman then planned to swing McPherson to the extreme right in another one of his patented whiplash movements. McPherson was still convinced, though, that he would be attacked that day, and as he repeatedly told his staff, he thought the attack would fall heaviest on his left and left front. He went to Sherman to discuss the order that would have sent Dodge to Decatur, and Sherman agreed that Dodge continue moving into position on the left, and then if no attack commences by 1 p.m., at least one division should be detached to destroy the railroad. In effect, he made this a discretionary order. Now, this conversation took place a little bit before noon. At noontime, all was quiet along the lines. Pearson and his staff, and Logan and Blair, were enjoying a pleasant lunch and conversation. As no attack had come, McPherson sent orders to Dodge that he detach a division and carry out Sherman's original order to tear up the railroad. Scarcely had this order been dispatched when heavy firing broke out in the direction of Dodge's Corps. Logan and Blair, of course, left immediately to join their commands. McPherson, after he gave orders for the protection of teams, wagons, and supply trains, ordered his chief of artillery to see to the disposition of the 16th Corps artillery. This, of course, was the opening shots of the Battle of Atlanta. McPherson then rode to Dodge, and he witnessed the first assaults against the 16th Corps first assaults of the battle. But then, however, he noted a gap in the line between Dodge and Blair, between Dodge on the left flank and Blair on the left front. His plan was to divert men from Logan, who was on the right, to fill this gap, and he had picked out a ridge line that would form a naturally strong defensive position, something like filling in the angle on a right angle. After sending a message to Logan, and after dispatching most of his staff from various parts of the battlefield, McPherson, accompanied by an aide, began to ride to Blair. He had ridden scarcely 200 yards when he was shot and mortally wounded. He had ridden into a line of skirmishers from Pat Claiborne's division. A Captain Richard Beard of the 5th Georgia, commander of the skirmishers, later captured, said that McPherson was killed immediately. Apparently this was not the case, because after the Confederates moved on, 
a wounded Union soldier, a man by the name of Reynolds, the 15th Iowa, came upon McPherson. Reynolds tried to give him some water and ask if he had any message, but he, McPherson didn't say anything and died within a few minutes. Then a straggler came by, another Union soldier, and robbed McPherson of several hundred dollars. Something of the obvious paradox, I suppose, in the character of the army. Reynolds was severely wounded in the arm and too weak to remonstrate. Later, he assisted in the removal of the body and refused to have his own wound tended, so he was severely wounded in the elbow until his commanding general, commanding general had been removed from the field. For this, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Aside from the effect upon the officers and men of the Army of the Tennessee and upon Sherman, far off in Baltimore, Emily Hoffman's family rejoiced that her Yankee lover was dead. As a matter of fact, she learned the news from overhearing an aunt saying, Have you heard the good news? Pearson is dead. Emily went into mourning and never married. Sherman reproached himself later in a most eloquent and poignant letter of condolence to Miss Hoffman. This was published a few years ago in American Heritage, you may have read. He remarked that it was better the bride of McPherson dead than the wife of the richest merchant in Baltimore. Well, aside from the obvious questions of military tactics, strategy, and the approach to military leadership, what is the lesson of McPherson's life and career? Perhaps it is enough to remark that in such a life, in such a death, we see the greatest reason for refusing to romanticize the tragic events of the 1860s. To what heights would he have risen? Sherman thought that if had he lived, he'd have been president. Others shared this view. What place would he have had in reconciling the North and South? With his strength of character, would the freedmen have been sacrificed to a century of the early, ugliest racism? Or would have McPherson been destroyed himself in the sordid politics of our Gilded Age? To paraphrase Gray's elegy in a country churchyard, how many like him, mute and glorious, lie in nameless graves across Civil War battlefields? Part of the tragedy of McPherson, part of the tragedy of the war, is reflected in the eulogy of a brave subordinate. Tragic because the appeal in this eulogy was denied by too many of his countrymen, then and now. In the story of McPherson's blameless life, we find the same exalted sense of responsibility, the same single-hearted subordination of himself and all his interests, and the same sublime and unfailing loyalty to the noblest impulses of which man is capable. No one can turn at the record he has left without feeling that he has added something to that which is best in the history of the war, and made plainer the duty which we owe our country and ourselves. His career may be likened to the record of a cloudless day. It rose and ran its course, complete in every hour, and it closed, abruptly but unbroken, when he fell, without color of blemish or reproach, in the hour of his greatest service, and without an enemy. But the light and inspiration of his day remained to us, like a fixed and silent star, which in the years to come shall lose not its high place and value in the firmament, but lift men's minds and hearts towards higher aims and nobler purposes.
hope you won't let the uh, clarity of expression and, and the literary quality of this talk keep you from giving him a hard time uh, in keeping with the tradition of this round table. I wonder if, uh, did I get a little signal from uh, Pete Long? That would be appropriate. Pete, go ahead. Well, I, uh, I speaker, and I'm not going to pick an argument, but I told him I was going to ask him this beforehand. Dr. Paul Steiner, in a very curious book, very curious, Medical Military Portraits, by the way, pointed out that like his whole career, his health was normal without, you know, average thing, like he was in so many of his activities. But he makes a, Dr. Steiner makes a strange statement in psychoanalyzing McPherson, as he does make some about other generals. But he said, and you touched on this, that McPherson looks like better presidential timber than Grant, Hayes, Garfield, or McKinley. <laughs> he, quote, he might well have become the Eisenhower of the Civil War. <laughs> now, I'm not sure this is good historical writing, but I'd like to have this. <laughs> well, let me let me comment on two, let me comment on two things. Uh, first, uh, Mr. Walton's uh, suggestion you give me a hard time. You may have noticed. Contrary to past practice, I limited myself to one gin and tonic at the bar because I heard rumors about this organization. <laughs> <coughs> Getting a stranger in your midst, uh, shall we say, particularly a country boy who ordinarily doesn't touch anything stronger than black strap molasses, <laughs> under the influence and in asking embarrassing questions. Now, as to uh, Pete's question, it's very interesting. Uh, in fact, many people. Not only after the fact, as I told you outside, now you can't find one man who didn't vote for John Kennedy in 1960. <laughs> you know, it's uh, gilding the lily after the, after the fact. Uh, men at the time, when McPherson was still alive, thought that he would go a long ways. And he had no political background. No. Well, Mr. Eisenhower didn't either. <laughs> Perhaps it helps. Perhaps it helps. I look at it this way. I believe we were discussing this earlier. One thing about the Civil War is the first for a lot of things, there's a lot of dribble written about this firstness of the war. But it's a, I suspect in our history, at least, is the first of the managerial wars. Now, there were, a few years ago, there was a sociological study of uh, the World War II commanders. I, sorry, I can't quote the author of the title, which is very good scholarship. It saves me from being questioned about it, I guess. That essentially, in the modern army, there's two types of generals, the warrior, and the manager. Now, in the World War II, you'd, the warrior type would be, say, Patton. The manager was Eisenhower or Bradley. As a matter of fact, the men who rose to high command in World War II were the managers. Now, perhaps an exception might be made of MacArthur, but he's an exception in so many ways. Well, I suspect that this was one of the, this is the case of the same as McPherson. Now, Liddell Hart was very critical of McPherson over the Rosaka maneuver thought Pearson might have been overrated, compared him to Hood. He noted that Pearson finished top in his class with the engineers. Hood was at the bottom. So McPherson was too, too solid, methodical, balanced mind to be dashing. Now, had Hood been given orders to cut the railroad at Rosaka, you can bet that he probably may have killed off the both brigades, but he would have tried to take that railroad. Uh, uh, McPherson was much more methodical. I think, I don't know what Mr. Steiner, Dr. Steiner had in mind, but this is what I come to my mind. McPherson was an, an excellent organizer and executive. 
after uh, Shiloh, he was a command of the railroad to the west, up and down the Mississippi River there. Military commander of Vicksburg, and an excellent commander of the administration. This, this type of thing, and his ability to bring staff together. If you get Frank Blair and John Logan and uh, Lester Stanford and Trendle Dodge on, this, on the same staff, and they all work in harmony, uh, you've done something. And I suspect this is the, at least this would be my analysis of that.
difficult to answer the question that he always was attacking a defeated or retreating army, but it's simply the case. Uh, he acquitted himself very well as a battlefield leader in that phase of the march from Fort Gibson to Jackson and back to Vicksburg. Uh, again, this is attested to by friends of his, not by enemies. Now, um, on the, uh, the flanking maneuvers from Rosaka to Atlanta, you say he all he did was march from one flank to the other. That's, that's like saying that all that Jim Ryan did was run a mile in three minutes and 56 seconds. I mean, once it's done, it's done. Uh, I think this attests rather well for his command of a, a corps or an army on the, in the field. I don't think that he had the, I don't know what word I want, for lack of a more de definitive or decisive term, I'd say strength of character that Grant or Sherman had. I, I don't think I wouldn't even attempt to argue it. But uh, to say he was an incompetent as a field commander, I think, uh, shall we say, overstates the case. Uh, the Osaka. Um, I, I waver on it, as you've seen. I think he should have tried to cut the railroad, but I think at the same time you can make a rather good case for him not doing it. It was, was a fiasco in that, in that sense. Uh, it was a fiasco also in the sense that when you look back on it in retrospect, which is the only way we can do it, was that he didn't have a sufficient force to do what he was going to do. If you consider the works at Dalton, and uh, if you've been to Dalton, Georgia, notice the Rocky Face and Buzzard Gap and various other picturesque names, you can see whether Joe Johnson could have held that with a rather small number of men and destroyed McPherson. Well, that's neither here nor there. I still think he probably should have tried to cut the railroad. Um, favoritism? I'd prefer to say it's a recognition of talent. I'm sure I've, I've probably missed several things that I missed some Categorically, I'd say that he did function well in the field command, in both after Shiloh, before Vicksburg, and between Rosanka and Atlanta. He had the confidence of his men, he had the confidence of his subordinates, and he had the confidence of his superiors. Now, this one aspect of his character, now, I don't mean to gloss uh, this over, was a certain, certain absence of uh, originality. Del Hart suggested maybe this is engineering, although of course Robert E. Lee was a pretty good engineer and had a certain, certain degree of originality, despite what uh, Tom Connolly said. Thomas Connolly said. Was there other point that I missed? No, I, 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 I'm wondering whether the word you were searching for was the expected character of the high side of the killer instinct. It seems to me it's like, you know, some of the math missed. But I want to get back to Rosaka and my friend Johnny Logan. Uh, it seems to me, in terms of what several people have said about Logan, maybe your description fits. He's scared ahead of the battle and after. It's only when he's fighting, you know, that he'll take the risk. Uh, and it seems to me what you said about Rosaka fits this. You know, when you're advising, I had 
But I have seen the story, a story I didn't put in my notes. And say when when the trucks were done, Logan wanted to touch it. No, and was overruled by the person. But I, I think it fits with some of the things I've said of, I've seen about this volunteer judgment. Because I had when you're planning, you might have been falling back only when when you were fighting the killer instinct came through. Okay, I don't know whether your your material is I don't know. That's such a vague point on yeah. my part because I never did know and it didn't seem to fit Logan's career. Maybe what you said is quite true, but his instinct seemed to be to attack. Yes, but I think uh, when he was fighting, yeah. uh, here's, here's, here's an excellent case of the warrior general, say, as opposed to the managerial. Sometimes you might call it the platoon sergeant mentality as opposed to the platoon leader. Help you a little bit. Uh, certainly, at the Battle of Raymond, uh, McPherson was the one commander, and he fought that battle very well. Uh, I question the fact that he was the uh, ranking major general that was killed. Certainly, General Mansfield and that uh, uh, was a major general. McPherson was the commander of the army, though. He's a, this is a corps commander, and he, he outranked uh, McPherson certainly at the time of his death. An army commander, it seems to me, would rank a corps commander. Yeah. Well, not yet, <laughs> because uh, yeah, because uh, Mansfield was a corps commander long before McPherson was an army commander. The, uh, the I wish you would comment on the part of McPherson in the Meridia Mississippi campaign. Meridia Mississippi. I can't really, because I don't know anything about it. Uh, well, I just I do well not to say anything. Uh, apropos what you said and what Mr. Fleming said uh, about uh, Logan and uh, who had advised uh, McPherson to draw back from Rasaka and then French at the uh, entrance to St. Creek Gap. One of the uh, newspaper columns, I believe it's W.F.G. Shanks, although I can't be sure of this, wrote impressions of generals. And on Logan, he said, as I recall it, never have I seen a more disgusted individual in my life than Logan when uh, McPherson withdrew from Rasaka and moved back to St. I believe I recall that. Slamming his gloves down and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, apropos of the first question I was asking, I was asked, uh, Kennesaw Mountain, which I suppose was Sherman's uh, one mistake in that campaign. Well, his, his first of two, his second was not reinforcing the Army of the Tennessee at Atlanta when it was about to get uh, defeated. Uh, a number of uh, Sherman's subordinates did not think they should attack Johnston, and several generals and officers standing around talking. And it, Logan told this story. Uh, he told it again in reminiscence. You can take it proverbial grain of salt. This is after Logan became a Republican, so I suppose you take a tablespoon of salt. But he, he said, this is a, someone said, this is a foolish mistake. We shouldn't do it. It'll be a failure. And McPherson was quoted as saying, well, don't let it be a failure because our hearts aren't in it. Well, let's go. And as a matter of fact, they were fairly successful, but that's another story. Oh, Brooks. Back to Sanctuary Gap, and then to the end of the week.
Sherman was under the impression that if McPherson not only cut the railroad, but got astride it, as he put it, that Johnson would be forced to retreat in some sort of disarray. As he put it off to the southeast somewhere, because the railroad went back across the river. There's a railroad bridge there in Socket. You have to retreat, or you have to turn around and fight more or less towards the rear, and, and supposedly this is when Sherman's army would move, the remainder of the army, rather, at Dalton. Uh, my, my only comment on that was, I, now, in retrospect, again, I suspect that Johnson could have held that line there with a rather small, a relatively small number of men. Those, that's an impossible situation. You've seen precipices on either side of that road, what is now the highway, goes through there. Um, I didn't, what was the first part? Maybe someone can help me. I forgot the precise length of time he was in marching. But this is, uh, no, it's true. As a matter of fact, um, he stopped several times. Uh, there's, you know, there's historical markers along that highway. There's a highway that goes through there now. And you'll find markers really a few miles apart, saying he stopped here, he stopped there. Uh, not nearly as aggressive, perhaps, as it should have been. Uh, whether the cavalry had made any difference or not, I don't know. Well, I, I think I do know. Uh, this, was, this was the great failing, was the lack of aggressiveness. He was too worried about the flank, and not worried enough about the works of Osaka. Now, Sherman said something once that covers this point very well. And Sherman said, here's what, here's what makes Grant different from me, meaning different from Sherman. He said, when Grant's enemy is out of sight, he doesn't worry about him. He said, he just scares the hell out of me. I'm sure you've seen that quotation. It's sort of the mentality that McClellan had before Richmond. I think McPherson shared the same thing. Now, there is one point. I think, now one of the uh, people I think you've had speak here before, uh, Ed Barnes, talk about misfire in Mississippi, the Canton expedition in Civil War history. Uh, McPherson showed lack of aggressiveness and so on in a, in a cavalry, or rather a concentrator expedition in force. I think Rusaka sort of a dividing line. After that time, it seems that the rest of that Georgia campaign, he was, a, a, was very aggressive in carrying out orders. Those, those flanking marches were, were tremendous. And there are indications and diaries and comments of people who were in various battles commenting on his leadership and his drive after that time. I don't know, maybe it, maybe he realized that he'd missed the chance of a lifetime. It was a, it was a case of being a bit too methodical. Maybe one more time he would have been relieved, I don't know. Okay, last one. Could, um, last talk. Presuming you are correct in your analysis and uh, that uh, had uh, McPherson attacked Rosaka, uh, 
Johnson held uh, Sherman uh, off with a minor port part of his force and sent the major part of his force down to attack uh, McPherson. Couldn't Sherman have forced March to sink Craig Gap and reinforced uh, McPherson that way? It been, uh, this would have been, in effect, splitting his army still a third way. And I'm uh, not sure the length of time it would have taken him to make that rather circuitous march as compared to the time it had taken Johnson. By the way, he moved his army by railroad from Dalton back to Resaca. They could do it in a rather small time. In fact, they did move large bodies of men. I think Johnston might, might have been right. I can see how, not easily, because it, nothing's done easily, but I can see how quite possibly they could have uh, decimated and uh, dispersed McPherson's force at Rosaka. Now this is again hindsight on Johnston's part, but I see where he might have had the better of it. It really wasn't a very strong striking force that McPherson had. It amounted to two corps. And now, where was it? Wasn't the Thomas one to do it? Yes, as a matter of fact. Right. Now here's the matter of fact, uh, some of Thomas's devotees have suggested that he brought this to Sherman's attention, among other things. Wasn't Blair with him at the time? I don't think Blair was at Versailles. No, he was still coming down. He was still politicking. <laughs> no, you don't have to tell He was still gathering troops. Well, gentlemen, I think you realize even better than I do that under this. Uh, veneer of Oklahoma hillbilly uh, corn cone. There, we've had some very penetrating analyses of the Civil War, some Civil War actions tonight. And on behalf of everyone here, we want to give you a tangible expression of our uh, pleasure in having you here by presenting you with this uh, small token of our...